Hi, everybody, and welcome to Mecha Dragon, a podcast about all the geeky and nerdy stuff you love. Brought to you by Captain Geek and the Dark Nerd. I'm your captain, Will. And I'm your nerd, Jess. Today, we're talking about The Vast of Night, a movie uh, currently available on Amazon Prime, directed by Andrew Patterson, written by Andrew Patterson under the pseudonym James Montague, and also Craig W. Sanger, starring Sierra McCormick and Jake Horowitz. So first, we are going to do our standard non-spoilery intro for the episode. So we're just going to talk briefly with no spoilers at all about this movie, if you haven't seen it yet, to give you an idea of what it's all about, what we thought of it, and uh, whether you know we recommend you see it or not. And then we're going to move on to a very spoiler-heavy conversation about the, uh, about the movie. Now, I know it's been a little while since we've had an episode. We've each been dealing with uh, some... Fantastic uh, global developments. <laughs> some fantastic <laughs> global developments in our own personal corners of the world. And so uh, I am sorry for anybody that may have been waiting with bated breath for one of our episodes. But we are back now, and uh, we've already got a couple other episodes planned. We're even going to be doing a uh, a follow-up to our extremely popular UFO episode that we did uh, last year. Uh, there's actually been some new information come out about that. So we're going to do that. And uh, this movie, The Vast of Night, uh, seemed like it would actually be a nice sort of companion episode to put, uh, you know, in the week before or after our UFO episode. Because actually, I will, before we get started with the non-spoilery part, I will read a super brief synopsis. Synopsis, thank you, of it. So, So here we go. In the twilight of the 1950s, on one fateful night in New Mexico, young switchboard operator Faye and charismatic radio DJ Everett discover a strange audio frequency that could change their small town and the future forever. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, with that being said, Jess, what are your non-spoilery thoughts about, about this movie, The Vast of Night? You recommended it to me, and I was like, okay, yeah, whatever. Another piece of crap. But uh, it started off pretty strong, kind of brings you in, and it's set in the 50s, I think 1958, in a town called Cayuga in New Mexico. Mm -hmm. And uh, right from the very start, it hits you with that 1950s feel. And I think the director and everybody in the movie really did a great job uh, making it, like, just immerse you in that feel. Like, the way that the that characters talk in it. They talk real fast, see? They, they go from this to that, and they, then someone else tried to chimes in. It's like constant, nonstop talking for, like, the first half of the movie. <laughs> the the rhythm of speech did feel very authentic. You know? Yeah. It felt very much like stuff that you would have seen, not just, like, professional radio announcers and stuff, although that was, you know, when he was... You know, in that role, I mean, it says in the description he's a radio DJ. That's not a spoiler. Like, that did sound very authentic. But also just the, you know, the, interviews the you would hear from stuff. the period and everything. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I thought it was really good. And the set design and the costume design, like I said, everything was spot on all throughout the movie. And I thought it was really put together really well. And uh, I really liked the film. It's uh, kind of suspenseful 
and it's a slow build, you know, slow burn uh, up until the end, which. Uh, but even though it's a slow burn, the like the slow burning in the beginning and like the first half of the movie is still really compelling to watch. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it's, it's not like one of those things where it's like the tension builds here and the tension builds there. It's just constant. It's just on a, like a roller coaster just going up, up the uh, first hill. <laughs> and that's kind of how it sounds as well. <laughs> and yeah. I guess uh, this is Andrew Patterson's first film. Yeah. And that was fantastic for what I saw on screen. So uh, here might be a good place to note, uh, since you mentioned that, you know, it was his first film. He had done some work producing commercials and shorts for the Oklahoma City Thunder, uh, which are an American professional basketball team based in Oklahoma City. They're in the NBA as a member of the league's Western Conference Northwest Division. So I, I said it robotically that like that because I'm not a basketball guy. And I was just reading <laughs> Wikipedia. That makes no but sense. But I guess, I mean, I guess he saved up this money from all that work and they made the movie at a cost of like $700,000, which if you think about it, it's not holy, holy cow. I mean, that's, I mean, you know, it, it takes place basically in this, in this little town in New Mexico, which was actually shot in Whitney, Texas. But the fact that they were able to make it look totally period, I mean, they actually spent $20,000 alone, just painting uh, there's a basketball court in in one or two scenes, and uh, and they made it look authentic because I guess at that time there wasn't a three point line, for example, and so they spent twenty thousand dollars like just doing that, and they also you know procured some like one of the other locations, and this is not a plot spoiler at all, really, is just a switchboard. Uh, the 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 girl Faye, her character's name Sierra McKenzie, she uh, or Sierra McCormick, sorry. She worked at a switchboard, and they actually found a functional, like, real switchboard from the time to use. Right. And they had to uh, which makes training. sense because everything looks so authentic. Yeah. Yeah. It was it was really cool. And there was, there was other stories I read about, uh, like, the town was so small, all the different shop owners and stuff basically, you know, would, like, give their keys to the store to the, the chief of police so if they like needed something late at night because it's still a town and it really didn't look like it was a town from the 1950s during the day. So most of well actually the whole movie takes place over the course of one night. Wait, so, you don't you don't think the town looks uh, uh accurate during the daytime? Uh, that's one of the things I read. Oh, you that's what you read. Yeah. Well, I mean actually if you you know just watching the movie and it does all take place at night. It's called The Vast of Night. It, it looks great. I think that there, I mean, if there's parts of the, you know, the town that look a lot more modern, they did a, a hell of a good job shooting around it, you know? Yeah. And like during the day, you'd see like telephone poles and telephone lines that you wouldn't see at night. Uh -huh. So, and like fire hydrants and stuff, they had to, in some shots, strategically place the uh, mm. authentic cars from the 50s. They like parked them in front of stuff that they couldn't you know, paint over, or, you know, move out of the way. But like all the, the shop owners gave the keys to the chief of police. And if they needed something to help film, they'd just go into the store and like, oh, we need a shovel to dig a hole. They'd go get a shovel and they'd go do this and go do that. So it was really cool how the whole town kind of 
was in on helping create the authentic feel of the movie too. Yeah, and you know, I think that um, the thing about this movie is the story is pretty good. The story is is you know is interesting and suspenseful and all of these things, but I think really what makes it shine so brightly is that just the incredible skill at every level of filmmaking mm-hmm. uh, to, to execute that story, right? Like the, the acting uh, just feels really genuine. You know, these characters are written extremely well, extremely well, extremely well. Yeah. And uh, the cinematography, I mean, is not only beautiful, but supports every beat of the story. And then like, even though they're on this like very small budget, uh, for a you know a feature film, you know they have some pretty impressive camera moves and things, including. So I'm going to read a, a couple sentences from Amy Nicholson's review in Variety about the movie, which can explain this a little bit better than than me just rattling it off. So, and I quote: <clears throat> At the midpoint, Patterson wows with a tracking shot that seems to race half a mile down a quiet street, take a left hook through a parking lot, sprint through an ongoing basketball game, and zip up the crowded bleachers before plunging out a window. It's effective razzle-dazzle that will probably get the young Oklahoman hired to make something 20 times the vast of night's budget. Yet the ambition behind it is just as impressive as is the crew's creativity at spinning financial limitations into magic. So... Yeah, that, that was a really cool scene, and that was one of the things that I liked about the movie the first time just watching it. It's like, it's one of those scenes that is original that, it's like a, I don't know, it's, there's one scene, I think that was like a five-minute scene or something, just going Well, that one town. shot probably took a minute, you know, like a whole minute just for that one shot. There was actually a lot, especially in the first half of the movie, there was a a lot of long takes like long takes in the master shot like yeah. or or even just a like a medium shot or something but just a long take that just holds you in you know the moment with these characters and whatever's going on and i thought that not i mean not only is that a way to stretch your budget to the max <laughs> because then you don't have tons and tons of shots that you're getting tons of takes of, right? You might just like get a few takes of like this one long shot, which takes up, you know, a larger, you know, percentage of the total runtime of the movie. But like it it also one of the things that it can do and definitely did very well in this movie was it functioned to kind of hold you in that moment with those characters. And I think that it was very good at building suspense. Yeah. You know, holding it in those shots. I mean, in a lot of times the characters are moving around from place to place and the camera's like following them. So it's not like, you know, a st- like they're just sitting in a room and the camera doesn't move at all or anything, but it just doesn't cut. <laughs> it just keeps right. following them. And I thought they found some really some really good ways to, you know, move the camera that made it very effective. And I even saw some some uh, I would say maybe some influence from like <sighs> Steven Spielberg and Woody Allen in there, maybe. Mm-hmm. Personally, yeah. And the 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 music score behind all those shots really helped set the mood too. I mean, it was. Oh yeah. The music soundtrack was spot on. I mean, the original score and the choice of period songs to put in there, I I think was great. See, the thing about this movie is, it's. It like it starts off very sort of mundane and introduces you to these characters, and you know they're. Uh, 
you know, you, you get to see in a very clear way who these people are and their sort of, you know, ordinary world before, you know, the inciting incident and things start start to get more, you know, interesting and suspenseful and stuff. Right. Uh, but then, like, you are just on the journey with them the whole time. And I found that the movie was just so effective at just slowly ramping up the suspense a little bit in every scene, you know, a little bit in every scene. And there was like not, I can't think of a single thing that that they put in that movie that wasn't like paid off later in some fashion. Right. You know, so why don't we wrap up our non-spoilery you know, part of this uh, episode, because I think we've talked a lot about the movie sort of in general so far. So let's wrap up and say, how many mysterious signals out of 10 would you would you give this movie? I'm going to go ahead and give it a strong eight right off the bat. Strong eight. Because I like the movie. Like you said, the storyline was so-and-so for the most part, but just the amount of work that went into it. I mean, I'm reviewing this movie on the work that everyone put into it. You know, like a movie like Avengers or something. It's going to be like, oh, Avengers, whoa! But this is something completely different. And the skill put into it and the, the method behind it really kicked it up a couple notches and made it a lot more enjoyable. Yeah, I'm going to have to give it, I think, an 8.5. Maybe a 9. I mean, this movie... You know, it's not a big razzle-dazzle, like, you know, summer blockbuster, but not every movie needs to be that. Right. I don't think they even had any CGI or special effects. Uh, I'm sure they had, bad. I'm sure they had, like, a, some level of visual effects, maybe even just uh, to help get the, uh, like, that long tracking shot that I mentioned real smooth right. or something like that. But, I mean, there, you know, visual effects can be used for things that are not, like, space explosions, you know? True. A lot of times they're just very, like, subtle things. Like, maybe they had to remove, like, a fire hydrant off the street. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, re I read also that one long scene where they're going through the town. Um, I heard that was, they got a go-kart from some 18-year-old kid. <laughs> and they, oh yeah, some, some guy was like laying flat on that as it was tr being driven around town. It's pretty funny. Yeah, I, f I figured it would be something like that. But I mean, you know, I, I just remember seeing in the credits that there was like a visual effects supervisor and stuff. So um, there had to have been like something, all, even if it was just small. So okay, so obviously we definitely recommend you watch this movie. We are now going to move on to our spoiler-filled conversation about. Yeah, real quick, even. Uh... Rotten Tomatoes agrees with us. Right. I think it's got a 92% on 92 with a 64% audience score, and we'll probably touch on why we believe that is. But mm. for the most part, um, Rotten Tomatoes is kind of backwards. They're, they're on the board. Yeah, it's it, – yeah. So we can talk about why we think that that divide is. But mm -hmm. look, if you are a fan of – you know, science fiction, if you're a fan of, like, UFO stuff, this is a movie that you will enjoy. I mean, don't expect it to be the Avengers or, like, you know, Independence Day. That's not what it is. It's kind of like a – it's a character study about these people that find a mysterious signal and they kind of work together to, you know, to track down what's going on. And, it, you know, they slowly go more and more down the rabbit hole. It's not, it's not quite Event Horizon. But I think certainly, <laughs> certainly right, the no. sequel, the sequel could. <laughs> no, <laughs> stop. No. Uh, okay. Uh, spoilers ahead. This is your spoiler warning. How'd your kids right. get in the cellar? 
All right. Let's do it. What do you want to say about this movie that's filled with spoilers? Well, the first thing is the show Ancient Aliens, I believe, on the History Channel. The guy with the crazy hair who's been <laughs> yeah. a meme forever. <laughs> and there's where just that, with that? That, that one meme where his hands are up. He's just like, aliens. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, the first it's, thing that just popped into my mind. You know, it's interesting because, you know, just the even from the trailer, like you watch and it's got this thing where they they discover this signal and the tie ins to it possibly being, you know, UFO based are very clear. Right. And it's interesting because the, you know, the characters really it doesn't seem like they're even aware of UFOs in the movie because it is the 50s. Right. Yeah. And, you know, even when they start, you know, figuring things out. It's not immediately clear that that's what it is. And then, uh, although your mind might definitely jump there, you know, but then there's like a hint of like, oh, it could be the Russians. Yeah. Uh, he mentioned that to her in the car at one point. And you think, well, I mean, sure. You know, who, who knows at this and point what's going on with this movie? That's what was going on in the, in the U.S. back then in the 50s. It was, you know, oh, the yeah. Soviets. The Red uh, Scare. Uh, I mean, Soviet, the first yeah. thing he had her record and her... Uh, and her tape recorder was, I am not, nor have I ever been a member of the Communist Party. That's <laughs> right. Like, when exactly. he wants her to test it out, that's what he has her record yeah. to it. Yeah. Uh, and you know, just, so that just sets the, way they, the stage really well. Yeah, just the way those two characters played off each other, I thought was really good, too. I think they both did a great job. I'm not really familiar with either of them. But, uh, the actors? No, I mean, yeah. neither, but I mean, I mean, they did such a good job. And I think I think the, the, the movie... And this is how it's written, you know, and, and, and of course directed, but it was so it was so incredibly clear to me who these characters were. Like, you know, Everett is the intelligent, resourceful guy that people come to for help. He's a little bit ambitious. You know, he has this great intro where you just after the like the like the Twilight Zone esque like opening, which I love. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was so cool. You know, it just shows him smoking a cigarette and you only see his face for like a second. And then the whole rest of like his intro is like you're the camera's just following behind him and you don't even really see his face. Right. Like he like walks through this, you know, area where the game is and like everybody's coming to him for help. They're like, hey, hey, Everett, solve this problem for us. Hey, Everett, what's going on here? Hey, Everett, solve this problem for us. Yeah. And that's like the first long shot they do in the in the film. Yeah. Uh, You don't really realize it. But looking back on it, it is just a constant. You know, he's moving from one room to the next, dealing with this person, that. That's all one shot. Yeah, and it shows, you know, not only is that the type of guy that he is, but, like, he knows everybody and everybody knows him and everybody, like, looks up to him. And he's sort of like a, you know, I don't know if pillar of the community. He doesn't seem like a real wealthy guy, but he's like the local radio personality, you know. So he's got a little bit of, like, local celebrity going on and he's kind of charming and, you know, but he's like a solid guy. So and then you have Faye, who's this like science loving dreamer. You know, she had those stories about what she read in like popular science or popular mechanics or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was funny because th- she was like talking about the tube trains and the self-driving cars. And then she she was like, oh, yeah, your phone is going to be like a computer with a TV screen on it. Right. And then Everett was like, ah, I believe the other stuff. But that's just. That's ridiculous. (laughs) (laughs) That was was funny. I mean, and it was funny. Their banter was like really funny and engaging and it made Mm. you empathize with them. You know, and back to Faye, you know, she works hard because it's 16 years old because she has no dad and her like mom works. And she's like not afraid to 
speak her mind. Like, remember that scene where she like calls him a jerk? Yeah. <laughs> so it, yeah. it was You're like, really on the stick with me tonight, Faye. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know. It was it was it was just funny the the way that they played that, and yeah. you know, and I I think that it, with a movie with this like you know older guy, or he's not real old, but he's you know. An adult, maybe twenty two, and she's or like a high school girl. She's like that could have come off very differently. I think that if they had played that differently, right? But, you know, they were just like friends in town, and he knew her family and stuff. You know, and 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 he was like trying to help her, you know, help her out, and it just snowballed into this crazy thing that happened. That both of them were like the only ones who knew, you know, what was going on to, to the extent that anybody did, right? Yeah. And like, I thought that they also set up. The stuff like the way that she behaved at the end, you know, you would be tempted to say, well, you're so stupid. Nobody would ever do that. And what I'm talking specifically about is taking the baby with them and then running off into the freaking woods in the middle of the night with her. But like if you remember from the beginning, she's carrying around her horn. I can't remember what kind of instrument it was, but it was some type of horn. Maybe it was like a I don't know. Yeah, they might have said it once, but they referred to it like 12 times as a horn. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, but she's carrying it around and he's like, here, let me carry that for you. And she's like, no, it's got to stay with me. If it breaks, I got to pay for it. So like, it's like you get this sense that like, if she's carrying something, she feels like it's safe with her. Right. So, mm-hmm. And they set that up very clearly. And then you also get this sense that like, okay, it's the fifties. It's this, it's this, you know, rural town in New Mexico where there's probably not a lot of crime. And there's shots where they're just walking down the road in the middle of the nowhere in the deep of the night, totally unconcerned about their safety. Right now, as a guy who lives in, you know, modern day, you know, Los Angeles in a big city, I mean, I'm not saying that, you know, there's, I'm not saying like the whole city is like super dangerous or anything, but that's, that's a totally different you know, set of considerations, you know what I mean? Right. And they just seemed, you know, totally carefree about it. And so therefore, when you finally get to that part at the end where they run away from that other couple, which we'll get to at some point, I'm sure, and they're just running through the woods with this baby, it's like, okay, you know, I, I wouldn't do that. But, and also, but, you know, she runs no, everywhere. Like, yeah. So she, whenever she goes somewhere, she's used to just walking or running. Yeah. Right. So yeah, it, in her panicked mind, she's not, She's not – it made sense to me in the context of her character, right, right that she, that's what she would do. Yeah, Whereas I went, think – went ahead and stole a car. You know, he's trying to drive her all around the place, and she's just like, force, go. Just takes off. I'm still running. You know, <laughs> yeah. She runs everywhere. It's pretty funny, actually. Yeah, so so I don't know. I just, I just mentioned that because I think that there's a lot of things in this movie that wouldn't have worked if they hadn't been as well written or as, as well directed, I think. I, I think it could have, you know, this, this movie could have been not good, but somehow it's been elevated to this, like, sublime, like, gem of a little independent movie. Yeah, and that's, that's it kind of reminds me a lot of the movie Cosmos, uh, which is also very similar um, to this. It's a very, very well done little low budget indie sci-fi film on Amazon Prime. Yeah. yeah. And I would and, definitely and that, encourage you guys to watch it. And that one's great, too. It really sucks you in. And they did an incredible job with very little. You know, that that movie basically takes place in the interior of a car. <laughs> in, in a car and in the middle of the woods. That's yeah. mostly a what car out in the middle yeah. of nowhere. But anyway, yeah, this movie here, just imagine the movie Contact about 50 years earlier. 
<laughs> so that's what you're looking at. It's like you're not going to get like the Independence Day uh, alien swooping in. It's not going to turn into uh, what's that District Nine. <laughs> oh no, it's not anything. Like I, I that. would, you know, I would argue though, since you brought up the comparison to Contact, that the aliens in Contact are much more benevolent. Because right. can we just talk about the very end of the movie? For I mean, we're in the spoiler section, so do you want to do it right now, or do you want to do that towards the end? Okay, we can do that towards the end. Let's come back to it though, because I want to come back to that comparison. All right. <laughs> but um, yeah, and I think that the fact that they got like a real switchboard from the period, mm-hmm. and they had real cars from the period, and you know, I guess they shot around the town good enough to you know not make the town look modern, and also, I guess the reason they filmed in that town in Texas, the reason they filmed in Whitney, Texas was because it had a large enough, like, old enough gymnasium <laughs> for the basketball game, right? And so... Um, yeah, because the rest of the movie takes place, like, running around the streets in the woods and inside, like, four different rooms. I think they had just enough... They gave us just enough to really firmly establish the period and make it mm-hmm. totally convincing, you know? Because... You know, once the movie started, I was in it, man. Yeah. And and it that movie did not let me go and, no, until it was done. Yeah, and it when it was you. done, good. I was left, like, sitting there, you know, almost with my jaw open, just, like, thinking about it. And I love it when I come away from a movie and I just can't stop thinking about it. You know, like, oh, what about this? And, like, what about that? And like, Yeah, oh, it's one of those happen? movies that it's so good that once the credits roll, you're just like, hmm... When am I going to fit this into my schedule to watch it again? Because it's one of those ones that you want to watch right away again. Like most movies I can watch and maybe revisit two or three years later. But this is one it's like, oh, i got to show this. You know, my kids are into the sci-fi alien stuff, so I want to show it to them. I want to show it to this person. I want to show it to that person and get their, get their feelings and their view on it. Yeah, and I think both of us have watched it twice at this point. Yeah, I just finished it about an hour ago. Excellent, yeah. I, well, I watched it originally, like, two or three weeks ago and then I mentioned it to you and we decided to do this episode and then you I think you watched it like a couple nights ago and then again this Mm -hmm. morning is that what it was yeah did you uh, we mentioned he's uh, Everett's uh, DJ of a radio station did you catch and happen to catch the uh, call sign of the radio station Uh, no I don't remember what was it W-O-T-W War of the Worlds oh that probably is a nod to War of the Worlds yeah it has to be (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's good thanks for catching that because i totally mm-hmm. didn't i i and feel a little bit rusty in the podcast game right now <laughs> <laughs> i don't know what i'm doing right now um, but okay i do want to talk about as, how the- as usual i am completely naked while recording so oh yeah i'm so glad you told us that right also i want to go back you mentioned uh the twilight zone-esque intro Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. At the beginning of the movie. Paradox Theater. Paradox Theater. And the whole, it's almost like, I mean, they tell you it in the very first scene, but this is basically, this movie is basically just an episode of that show. There's a show back in 1958 called Paradox Theater, which was just like uh, Twilight Zone. Here it was so Twilight Zone. World. I mean, down to like the opening you know, monologue, intro, mm-hmm. it sounds exactly like, you know. Yeah, it's like the same voice and everything. And then there's a couple scenes throughout the movie, especially when Faye's running around, 
where it, it shifts back into, you know, you're watching it on a black and white black and white screen with the the static and stuff from. Yeah, it, it was interesting the moments that that he chose to take it back into like watching that flickering, you know, mm. old black and white TV set. There were lots of really interesting moments in the cinematography of this film. And that was certainly one of them. And I thought it was really interesting to kind of frame the movie as an episode of one of these, you know, creepy Twilight Zone, you know, type shows. Yeah, because they, they never actually come out and say it. It's just that the first scene, you know, it's got the TV and you zoom into it and then everything changes from black and white and grainy to, to full color. And then five minutes later, you forgot that happened, you know, because you're so <laughs> drawn in to what's yeah. going on on screen because there's a lot going on. And uh, yeah. a lot, lot to absorb. And then, you know, when Faye finally goes and checks into work at the, uh, I don't know what you call it, the telephone company. No, uh, the switchboard. That's, that's when it, yeah, the switchboard place. That's when it switches yeah. back to the, the black and white. And it's like, oh yeah, yeah. that's right. And then this when she's, and then when she's running to get the, uh, the, the, the tape out of the library, mm-hmm. it does it again too. Um, but it's, you know, these, these really interesting you know, devices in the cinematography I kind of want to talk about because I think that they were really helpful. I mean, everything they did, they used to great effect. And I think that some of the stuff they did, even the unusual stuff they did, only added to the to building the tension and suspense. Mm-hmm. And so, for example, and I want to talk a little bit separately about the whole process of building the tension throughout the movie. But, like, if you remember when Billy calls in, to the radio show after they play the the sound uh, that, that he recorded that interrupted his broadcast, uh, Emmett. And, like, Billy starts telling his story, and then it literally fades to black. Yeah. It, it does it twice. It does it yeah. twice. So, and so I thought that it was a, a very interesting way to make the audience focus on exactly what he's saying and nothing yeah. else. Because yeah. it might be, you know, it might frankly just take your attention away from his you know he's a very plain spoken guy mm-hmm. you know and you know you might sit there and like your attention might wander to watching Emmett you know uh or Everett you know smoking a cigarette or you know I don't know like the spinning you know wheels of the re- tape recording in his you know 1950s era uh, radio booth like who knows but I, I just thought that because it faded to black and then it faded back up with Everett just listening to him, basically, mm-hmm. and I think maybe asking him a couple, like, follow-up questions. Right. And then it fades, and then back, it fades back to black, and it really makes you focus on the details of what he is saying, what Billy is saying, and also really the tone that he's saying in it. And frankly, I think the guy, whoever played Billy, did a fantastic job acting in that scene, too, because all you got is his voice. Right. But he manages to convey this sort of, like, how unsettled he is about it. That would be you know, uh, Bruce Davis. And how he really does feel compelled to, like, talk about it and all this stuff. And, uh, you know, they also – I thought it was – you know, they worked in the fact that he was like, you know, maybe people don't believe me because I'm black. Yeah. What he said. And then he was like – he was like, you know, and all the guys that I worked with on these secretive jobs, like, they were all black or Mexicans or something. Yeah, and, and I don't Everett know if asked really... him, did they do that on purpose? And he goes, I know they did. Yeah. Because who's exactly. going to listen to us? And I thought, oh. And if something came, you know, something took a wrong turn 
uh, oh no, we lost uh, five or six black or Mexican soldiers. Oh well, who cares? Yeah, it's it just uh, it was another you know. I think there's so much to say about that <laughs> in the Especially context of the country, today. but like, <laughs> but I mean, you know, in terms of the movie, it definitely was uh, a fact that landed just another air of historical accuracy, and it, and it, it also I I think made, I think it also just it toppled them so much deeper down the rabbit hole because the fact that he brought up those details, I. Th- I feel like it just made him more credible. Like it made him, it made them believe him more, I think is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Cause he was willing to come out and talk about it. And like, like you said, he's, you know, been fairly silent about it, uh, for years, aside from talking to some other guys that were in the same squad as him. Um, mm-hmm. when they were, I was actually just looking up area 51 cause it said it was built in 1955 and i don't know if mm-hmm. billy ever actually said a location to where no he, he said was. he didn't know where it was because they flew him around they picked up other people and then like they got into a bus with the windows blacked out yeah but so it could that been. is actually a detail uh that you know that's on record from people who have worked at area 51 said like they would get you know bust in on these windows with the black you know yeah. these buses with the, the black janet planes on. yeah but so. that that could be, you know, a subtle nod to Area 51 because this would be three years after it was uh, created. I kind of took it that way yeah. because didn't he say that it was like all like dusty and or something like that? Yeah, it was all out and dusty in the desert and they were just digging a big hole in the ground. And then one day they woke up, they like dug a hole yeah. in the ground and built brick walls around it, but there was no roof. And then, That was a creepy story, man. That yeah, and then, really then a couple story. days later there was this like craft or something covered with a tarp in this hole, but he could just see around the edges. It looked like it was damaged or something. Then they built the roof over top of it. And uh, that could be one of the first bunkers at area 51. Maybe. So I do want to talk about, uh, with all that said, I do want to talk about how well the movie builds tension because wow, it's really good at that. So, you know, first, we kind of get to know these characters in sort of the place where they're at this, you know, sleepy little town in New Mexico in the fifties. And then, you know, she goes to work at the switchboard and like, that's when weird things really start happening. Right. Like she gets like first, she's listening to his radio program and the signal interrupts it. And then she gets a call from this woman and she's like, can you hang up and call back? There's a lot of interference. And she's like, no, there's something floating over my property. And it's kicking up like a tornado, kicking up. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's like, and she sounds okay. terrified. And then she gets cut she's off. like, I'm running to the basement. You hear dogs barking in the background and stuff. Mm-hmm. That was, I mean, that was the way that that was handled. I thought was made it very disturbing, mm-hmm. you know, and then she gets cut off. And then, like, she's talking to these other people, and they keep getting cut off, including the, her babysitter for her little brother or little sister. And then she gets – and then she has the signal, like, on a line, like, one of the her lines so she yeah. can hear it. And then she tries to, like, get other people to listen to it, including um, Everett. Yeah. You know, and then, of course, the, the, they go through the whole sequence where, you know, he plays it, and then he's like – Let's, you know, if you know anything about this, please call us. And that uh, that's when Billy calls, right? And then we right. just talked about that. And then over the course of that call, like, 
I feel like the tension real in this sense really gets ramped up during the call with Billy. And then, of course, he gets cut off, which was interesting. And then finally, when they realize that they can go get that recording that Billy was talking about from that guy who like tried and tried and finally was able to record it. And finally, when they finally when they broadcast that, the freaking power goes out. Right. <laughs> right. That was nuts. Yeah, that was cool. And it's just and one of they end up back in the switchboard. And that's when the woman calls. Yeah. The old 16, lady. 16 Sycamore. Right. And then and then so it's like it's like every like scene, it, the, the tension goes up just like a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. And so, in some of the scenes, it goes up more than others. Right. Like Billy. And then when they hear the the story from the woman, that was creepy. Sorry. What, yeah. What were you going to? No, it's just like they, they don't really even understand what's happening through all of this. They just got like the one lady called earlier in the movie and said there's something in the sky. But there wasn't a bunch of reports yet. It wasn't until later on in the movie. It was after they meet uh, Jerry, who goes by Gerald, and Bertsy, um, another couple. And they're like, oh, we saw something in the sky. It's over on the edge of town and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And that scene was creepy, too, when they were in the car with them. Oh, man. Because, you know, they, they ended up ultimately I, – I think that Everett – when she got to the end and she was like, you need to take me with you because I want to go up into the ships. I think that he was sort of on the verge of kind of like being inclined to believe her. But then at the end when she did that, he was like, ah. Well, let's, let, let's start over with her story. Uh, Mabel Blanche, played by Gail Cronauer. Uh, she was just your typical old woman living in an old big house all by herself. And she has a story that she wants to tell them. And they're like, well, you're on the radio. You're on the air. Let's go. And she's like, no, I want you to meet me in person. So that's when she gives the address and they go to meet her. And they show up at her house. She's like, there's a key under the potted plant on the porch. So they walk into the house. And they're like, hello. And she's like, I'm back here. And then she starts speaking in this foreign language that they don't recognize or understand. And that part was like, what's what's going on? That's when I knew things were going to get ramped up a notch. So then <laughs> they, they, they go into the room and meet her, and she gives them a story about her son, who I think maybe between the ages of five and eight, somewhere around I think around she that. said he was nine when he was ultimately okay. taken. Yeah, but he had always been a, a different boy who would just like stop and like stare into space, not technical space, just a far off gaze. And he'd just focus intently on things and then he'd just like snap back into doing whatever he was doing, playing with his 1950s Legos or whatever. And then uh, later on, those episodes were coming along more and more. And one day he just kind of got up and walked out the door and vanished. And Mabel. Uh, followed outside to try and find him and followed his footsteps in the dirt and they just went out about 150 yards and then disappeared. So. Yeah. They um, never they never really mentioned how she learned that language, did they? Well, she didn't. She just, I mean, she said that she didn't understand it and it wasn't English, it wasn't Spanish or Russian or like any other language she could find. And that, you know, since he said it several times, she eventually just wrote it down is what she said. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, 
I, I think that, I mean, she was so compelling when she was telling that story. And especially Faye was like really into it and believing her. But I think at the end, because um, Everett just said, let's go, Faye, when she made her request. And then when she asked them to take the the paper with, you know, the the strange words written on them, they didn't do that. And so... But, like, you can't escape this feeling that there's something to what she's saying. And then that's when they go, they end up getting in the car with that other couple after that, right? Because they come back and they're like, oh, we found it. And because I think after that, did they go back to the switchboard again? Because Faye talked to... No, what happened was when... Yeah, they did because Faye talked to uh, her babysitter and she was like, why the hell aren't you watching the baby? Uh, although she didn't use the word hell because <laughs> yeah. she's very proper. Um, and she said, oh, and, and, and her babysitter was like really distraught. And she was like, I went up on the roof with my boyfriend and there's something hovering over town. Have you seen it? And that's when she runs back out and the couple's there and they get in their car. Yeah. And while she was in there, she was checking a lot of the other calls coming in on the switchboard. And they were all about there's something in the sky, something in the sky, yeah. something in the clouds. And they get in the car with uh, Jerry and Bertsy, which is a beautiful name. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, if you could, I would like you to name all of your children Bertsy, whether male or female, from now on, because that's a lot of fun. Crazy kids. But they get in the car with these two, and they're all freaking out, like, well, what, what did they say? What did they say? And she's like, well, it's just a big circle hidden in the clouds. And they start driving, and... She's got the her little sister yeah, and they Maddie asked, or whatever. They asked them what they found out from that woman, and then he decides to play those those words, and then that's when right. they he... look up and stop paying attention to the road. And that was I like that that was really freaking creepy. I mean, yeah. that was I was like squirming in my seat. Yeah, because at first, you know, when I was trying to put the pieces through on my second watch through, I was like and I wondered the first time, I was like, why didn't he take the paper? You know? And then he gets in the car five minutes later, and he actually has the audio recorded of it. Yeah. And, yeah, he starts playing that, and they do the – they just, like, start tilting their heads up and looking straight up. And Gerald is driving a vehicle, and that was <laughs> yeah. 1958, so that vehicle probably weighed four tons. You know? There was no seatbelts. <laughs> no seatbelts, and she's got a baby in the back seat, and they're just, like, not even staring at the road. They're looking straight up, yeah. and everyone starts freaking out. And then to they be get... honest, like, you know, I don't blame them one bit for running away from those people after yeah, that, no, right? Because, okay, sure, like, we're not going to say the words anymore, but are you still under the control of whatever the heck this is? And where are you going to take us and what, you know, what's really going on here? So, yeah, And that's one thing, too, I was wondering, because when the old lady was saying the words, it had no effect on Faye and Everett. So I'm right. wondering if perhaps... Uh, Gerald and Bertsy had already been compromised. Well, clearly they had since those words yeah. had that effect on them. I mean, that's and, the way that I'm reading it. And Bertsy made made the comment. She's like, no, get back in the car. We just want to take you home. It's like, well, you were obviously two right. seconds ago trying to drive to what ends up being a mothership. And so, of course, then there, you know, he's chasing her through the woods and she's just running like she has, like continually yeah. throughout this movie, right? Just so willy nilly. <laughs> actually strange for her to be doing this. That's why I kind of brought up why, like the fact that they planted all of these things in the beginning of the movie, because I think if they hadn't done that, then it really would have been a moment at the end where it's like, ah, this is stupid. She wouldn't have done this, but actually she would have, you know, and she was also really scared and she was clutching to, you know, her little sibling 
Clutching and, her pearls. Yeah. So, okay. So then we come to the end or, you know, near the end. And, you know, first they look and they see this. Uh, well, he finds like that burnt spot in the woods, right, where they stop. But then they look right. up and there's like rays of light coming down from something in the sky. And I'm like, oh, well, it's like oh, it's like shit. Uh, that's what I was wondering. It's like that burnt patch of ground. And then it leads you stand there and look up and you see this whole like a literally hole like in the, the tree covering in the treetops. And I'm wondering, mm-hmm. was it a beam that came down and burnt through the trees or well, was this that from is, a craft? This is this is off? a physical effect that has been described in many close encounters or like mm-hmm. in, in areas where, you know, UFOs were supposedly spotted. So that that played right into the 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 UFO lore that I'm familiar with for sure. Yeah. But so then of course they they run, you know, further through the woods to get a better look at these things in the sky, which, you know, uh looking back, I'm not sure that was a great idea. <laughs> for yeah. Them. And they end up in this field. And then there's that scene where they're out in the middle of the field and the woods are like surrounding them. And Faye's like, do you think they're in the woods? And then you start hearing that mechanical humming sort of sound and Everett just kind of starts blank eyed walking well, I mean, towards they, the woods. They find them. Well, he starts walking toward him, but I don't I, I didn't think he was like hypnotized so much as he was just like, wow, holy crap, we found something. It's amazing. I don't know, because when I just crazy. watched it again, it's like that you hear that sound kick in. And then he starts walking, and then the sound stops, and then he turns around. So Maybe. I, I mean, that that could be, sure. But I think um, – so here's here's the thing that goes on at the end. Like, A, they see all these, like, UFOs in the sky. Or they see, like, at least a couple of them, and then, like, one really big one uh, with a small one sort of flying into it or something. Yeah. It's like but a then, with okay, here's, here's where I want to come back to that comparison you made with the aliens from Contact because <laughs> – it's like they, they're seeing them all, and then there's like – I can't remember a flash of something, and then it comes back, and they're like hugging each other as there's like a whirlwind, like a tornado going around them. Right. Like that lady described in her phone call. But then when it – you know, when it finally comes back to that, you know, to that spot that night, I think it, it flashes to like everybody coming out of the game or something. Right. But when it flashes back to that spot in the woods, it's the tape recorder – uh, surrounded by a bunch of ash. Yeah. And so, you know, the first time I watched it, I was thinking, oh, they were abducted. And I didn't really, I don't think I noticed that it was ash. But the second time I watched it, I was like, wait a minute, that's ash, like they found elsewhere. So did the aliens disintegrate them or take them? <laughs> well, I mean, what would be the purpose of disintegration? They, they know too much. Hmm. Well, they do burn. We've learned that. On to the next planet. <laughs> but, I mean, it, it is ambiguous, though, right? Yeah. Because we don't know what happened to that woman's son, Hollis. You know, we don't know what happened to the woman who called in because she saw it on her property. We don't know what's going on with this mind control, with the weird language. You know, a lot of it is very ambiguous, uh, very much like... You know, the whole, <laughs> the whole alien. search for UFOs yeah. over the many past decades, right? But yeah. that last time I was like, oh, wow, did they did they get incinerated? And it just made it even creepier. So I was kind of wondering what your take on that was at the I, end. I, I guess I really didn't notice or think of it as being ash because that, that just doesn't make sense to me. But It is, hearing, though. It, if you look at it closely, like, well, I mean, it's dark, too, so... yeah. 
but you can see it in the texture and then some of it kind of blows in the breeze. Yeah. And I was wondering when they showed the tape recorder, I was like, why is it maybe the whirlwind kicked up a lot of dust or something? But yeah, I didn't I just didn't put the two two together. But I would assume having a tractor beam like that, maybe that's what it does to the planet while safely and calmly escorting uh, two humans with a little baby it's onto their ship. Safely so escorting be, two humans up uh, with so a tractor beam while incinerating the grass all around. Yeah, so they can be probed both orally and anally. I don't know. I, I think you're. I think you just can't admit that they were disintegrated. Well, back to War of the Worlds. That those aliens in that they they were definitely malevolent and uh, very aggressive in nature and would just disintegrate everybody, but. As far as this, I don't know. Changes the whole story if they're just coming around disintegrating people rather than abducting them. Yeah. And if you're just going to disintegrate people, why do it out in the middle of the forest with no witnesses? Why not just do a War of the Worlds and go through town? (laughs) (laughs) You're missing the point of them keeping it all quiet. But hey, (laughs) that's your interpretation. Whatever. (laughs) So, okay. So I think we've come to the point where we should wrap up. I mean... It's kind of hard for me to pick apart the rest of this movie right now in the sense that we've talked about really, I think, the major elements that made it so great. The writing, the direction, the the, the performances of the actors, the cinematography, some ways that those were used to make this, you know, a tale extremely well told. Yeah. Um, I mean, this is this is cinematic magic, people. Uh, r- really. I mean, it really is. If you have any... If you'd like any, you know, movies that have to do with UFOs or science fiction, like this is, um, or even if you just like sort of like mystery suspense movies, I mean, my God. I I watched a video on YouTube where they had uh, the director out and he was talking about the movie and uh, I'm paraphrasing here, but he made a comment like, well, we could have done this, this or that, but we chose not to. Because everything that you see in our movie has been done before. Which yeah. is true. This isn't a totally original story. Yeah, yeah. But the way it's executed is on a different level. And like I said, the, the ending of the movie, for a lot of people, you know, there is no great reveal. You know, there's... There, there, there is still mystery. Left, although, you know, it's wondering. clear something has happened to these two characters. Yeah, yeah. you're left wondering. Three and, characters, and as, actually. Yeah. As we all know people really hate not having everything spelled out for them. So I think that's why on Rotten Tomatoes, the critics gave it a you know double thumbs up, and I think 64% of the, uh, the viewers... Well, the audience rating, yeah. Yeah, the audience I mean, my rating. guess is that it's because less people are interested in low-budget indie borderline art house movies, you know, but it's... You know, it's not flashy like a lot of movies are now, a lot of the big-budget yeah. movies. This is a good movie for people that enjoy good cinema. You know, regardless yeah. of yeah. genre, regardless of topic, it is just a really well-done uh, movie, and it's great. And I'll probably watch it two or three times in the next month or two with my kids and whatnot. Did you watch it with uh, your daughter? I did not watch it with my children. They are out of town at their Grammy's house, doing some house-sitting while she's out of town. But they will be strapped down uh, Clockwork Orange style and will be experiencing this movie uh, toot-sweet, as they say. 
<laughs> I'd expect no less. Okay, well, <laughs> I don't think I have anything else to add. Uh, you know, uh, we've made our recommendations. This is a really, really exceptionally well done little film. I encourage you to check it out on Amazon Prime. And uh, I think that's going to be our episode for today. I want to thank everybody so much for listening. Uh, we are back in the saddle. We should be putting out episodes regularly once again. And um, we're really excited to be doing so. So if you have a moment, please go and leave us a five-star review and or rating on your podcast platform of choice at Apple Podcasts would be really nice for us. That kind of stuff really does help out the show. And uh, Jess, did you want to give everybody our social media details? Uh, yes, I would. To all of the uh, anal probers or anal probies, uh, you can find us on your galactic super internet highway at mechadragon.net and you can catch our podcast on Anchor, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, CastBox, Stitcher, everywhere else. Uh, please give us, like Will said, uh, thumbs up, five-star rating. Tell your parents, tell your friends, tell your kids, tell your grandparents about us. Spread the word. Uh, tell them they can find us on Facebook at Mechadragon, Twitter and Instagram at Mechadragon Show. And if you'd like to talk to us in email form, mechadragonshow at gmail.com. Any questions, comments, corrections, topics, or sightings or abduction stories you might have. And we'll talk about those in a possible future episode of Mecha Dragon. Thanks for listening. That we shall. All right. Thanks, everybody. It's Captain Will signing out. Peace out. Our music is Overworld by Kevin McLeod from Incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0, creativecommons.org slash licenses slash buy slash 3.0.